Hello, and welcome to Lots Unfamiliar, the show that remembers when Wall's Skinner-themed ice lolly, Oi, was renamed last minute to The Finger, which isn't that much better. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers, that no one else ever seems to, is comedian Meryl O'Rourke. Meryl, what are you up to and where can we find it? I am doing my solo show, Vanilla. So I'm doing it at the Glasgow Comedy Festival on the 13th of March at the Hug and Pint. I'm also doing various showings. Sorry, I haven't got them in a list, so I'm going to my diet. I'm doing it in Norwich at the Brew House on the 4th of March. I'm doing it in Bury St Edmunds on the 8th of March. I'm doing it in London, Hammersmith Grove on the 10th of March. And then hopefully taking it up to Edinburgh, but I haven't got my venue as yet. Well, I'm fairly certain there's one place you won't be taking it, which is the location of your first choice, which... Now, this theme music might sound a bit familiar, but not familiar as my generation, but we'll find out why that is in a minute. When this winking light you see, say these words out loud to me. Words and pictures. Okay, Meryl, that was the introduction to... Sam on Bob's Island, which, for me... So, my mum was a librarian, and she was very keen on me learning how to read. And Sam on Bob's Island, I was surprised when you looked it up, actually, as to how early it was, because it was made in 72, and I was born in 71. So, obviously, my mother was really trying hard for me to read. But but it was a programme to help children to read. It, It had a lot of... So, whenever anybody said anything in it, what they said was typed up onto the screen. And the boss kind of work they had an island but it also was a kind of print work so everything this character Sam said who was played by Tony Robinson they would sort of type out and print out so it was a very good way of teaching children to read and what was odd for me is that in my household Sam on Boss Island was huge so it was always really bizarre for me that nobody else had ever watched it nobody remembered it because for me, things like Play School, Bagpuss, which has some of the same voices, for me, those were kind of spin-offs of Sam of Boss Island. So it was always really weird for me when other people would get very excited about Play School, and I'd be like, yeah, but it's just like copying Sam. <laughs> and then also when Tony Robinson appeared, like when he started, I can't remember his, because he was in lots of things before Blackadder, but Blackadder was the first time people, I think, really noticed him. For me, it was like, oh, it's Sam. And also he was in a big comedy show called Who Dares Wins, which I was obsessed with, which is why I've been looking while I've been on the phone for you, looking for my annual because I took it to a Who Dares Wins recording for him to sign. Really? Yeah, I thought he'd be a bit kind of like, oh my God, you've got this. But he was actually really nonchalant about it. So maybe more people remember it than I thought. Well, it seems to be one of those things where the people who remember it remember it really well. And like you say, it's not really lasted in the wider consciousness. I think possibly part Partly because it looks like it was part of Words and Pictures, which obviously was the BBC School show for primary school children, where it had a different theme each series, but they repeated them ad infinitum, which is probably why we both remember this. But it's weird it's not better known, because the animation was by Oliver Postgate and Peter Furman, who, as you say, later did Bagpuss. And also, the music was by John Faulkner and Sandra Kerr, who were later Gabriel and Madeline in Bagpuss. And obviously it sounds very similar. I'm going, oh, they're the voices from Sam on Boss Island. Like, absolutely considering Bagpuss to be a spin-off. There was also this rather implicit thing with Sam on Boss Island, that Sam was having hallucinations because possibly he was on LSD. In the early 70s, everything was kind of psychedelic and drug-addled. And as a small child who didn't really know what drugs were, you were still kind of aware 
that most things referred to drugs. And it's a bit like now that my son doesn't really understand what sex is, but he's sort of vaguely aware that nearly everything he watches is relating to sex somehow. And we had that with psychedelic drugs in the early 70s. So Sam would be shopping or having a meal, and then suddenly he would stare into space and he would end up on this island full of puppets that were printing out all of his words. And it was always rather implied that he had dropped a tab. Yeah, there definitely was. Well, I mean, I don't know whether you should say it was something in the air or something in the water, but around then, it was kind of the hangover from, you know, the actual proper psychedelic scene of the 60s, where it all sort of rippled outwards and made its way into things like, I think, play school was very it's not fair to say psychedelically influenced but you had things like presenters who were from what's now called the acid folk circuit and they come in and done songs like bang on the drum rewritten for children and it was this whole kind of i mean when you're a kid it's that kind of headspace you're in anyway i guess so and we've got children's books that we're reading with my son at the moment called counting on an elephant which is from 1974 the drawings in it everything is rainbow colored so every item of clothing everything around it is completely rainbow coloured it's very psychedelic visually and it's about a boy who goes out to buy some ginger because they're making biscuits and he keeps meeting things along the way and then he realizes that he, instead of walking to the corner shop he's walked on top of an elephant and then a magic rabbit appears and shrinks the elephant and then he gets to take the elephant home so, so everything around that time was very brightly colored and very hallucinogenic and, and so sam it's a shame because I really wanted to find the annual and like I said, I've put it somewhere safe, which is the kiss of death. Because this is the other thing as well, is that a lot of the things I'll be talking to you about today, I have actually still got in the house. <laughs> <laughs> and also the other thing about watching clips online is Tony Robinson must have been really young, but he looks old. Yes! <laughs> Tony Robinson is because he looks about 30 in 1972 can't explain that but you're absolutely right i mean he can't have been very old at all because he did play away around then as well i don't know people did sort of look older in those days but not in that sort of way he doesn't look like prematurely aged he looks like a reasonable state for someone his age to be in except not that age i cannot accept, i don't know what i'm saying there but it's something along those lines it's just something to do with his face and i guess that's what makes a good character <laughs> but yeah he's, he's always looks the same age i mean this is spooky as well i was talking to my husband yes i didn't even think i was talking out loud i was thinking oh i need to look up sam on boss island and then my phone asked me if i wanted to watch tony robinson on time team so they somehow managed to get in the ether that i was thinking about tony robinson but now he he has got very little hair and it's grey, but his face looks the same. Exactly the same. Yes, I was just about to say that. Yeah. His face is exactly the same as it was in 1971, where he was wandering around markets looking drug addled and being rescued by small puppets who would then just repeat words back to him very slowly. Maybe he had some sort of cunning plan to make that happen. <laughs> Sorry, that was dreadful. It's interesting, though. I mean, it was quite the sort of de rigueur thing. I mean, I'm assuming probably both when we started out doing what we're doing to see people going, what drugs were the people who made X and Y on? And obviously they weren't on drugs, but probably they'd seen or heard things by people who were on drugs. Like, And obviously they'd all seen Yellow Submarine. When you look at things like Jamie and the Magic Torch, it's really reflected. It was considered a children's film because it was a cartoon. Yes, yeah. To me now as an adult going, oh, actually, it was children's film it's just i was a child being 
shown it. And I remember going to a children's theatre to see a show called Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. It was about a tightrope walker called Lucy who fell off the tightrope and died and then went to heaven and therefore was a star. And I had always associated that with being what Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was about until I got a bit older and went, oh, okay, it's LSD. But also, I mean, it wasn't until you did your bit of research that I realised that Michael Rosen wrote it. Oh, yes. Explain why it's so specific about this is how you read, this is how you teach a child to read, because it's still his big thing. So he must have been relatively young, and therefore possibly he had dabbled a bit. I mean, he seems like an old hippie. Uh, if you're listening, Michael, we mean that in the nicest sense possible. It's kind of his vibe, really. The weird thing is that that vibe is kind of counteracted by the rest of the cast because you've got... I didn't realise this to look at Miriam Margulies is Sam's mother, who I think is off-screen a lot. And also, the voices of the puppets were by Charles Collingwood, Judy Bennett and Nigel Lambert, who were all veterans of the archers, which is hardly... I know there were probably phases in the 70s where some hippies held a free love concert in Ambridge and they got angry, but it wasn't really you know imbued with the spirit of the age so it's quite odd because it's got that kind of psychedelic folky rustic tinge to it as well but that was just the 70s that's just what life was like in the early 70s that's how people dress that's how people talk so all of my friends mothers wore caftans and and ribbons in their hair and used to call their children you know my best friend at school was a girl called katia and she left school because her parents were going to go caravanning around peru and so it's just what life was like. Everybody was in corduroy dungarees. It's just what life was like then. Yeah, and the folk horror thing. I mean, you could even be... Because I grew up, you know, in the middle of a huge city without much green space around. But even so, I was aware of it in the sense that, you know, because it was in everything we watched, everything we heard and so on. And it was a bit kinder to us. It was here be monsters. You know, there was a bit of green at the edge of the railway and you thought... That's where weird puppets live, and kids out of public information was go and fly kites by pylons. We were a bit scared of anything rural, really, because we never really went on rural holidays either. Isn't that partly because of the warning adverts? Because they did make things terrifying. Yes, well, that was exactly it, yeah. And I don't know if anybody remembers this. There was an advert in the early 70s to warn people against fireworks, and it showed a girl who was holding a sparkler who the sparkler set fire to her and she crumbled into dust. Now, as an adult, I came to realise on my own that she was made out of papier-mâché and the older children watching it would have gone, that's made out of papier-mâché. Because I was two or three, I just saw a girl burn to death on an advert and then never went to a firework display. Wow. I thought you were going to mention the one with the girl doing the Churchill salute with the bandaged thing. In the 70s, it was, you know, I know there's a stereotype of us going, we had it tough in the 70s. <laughs> they really just tried to terrify you about everything. Okay, well, sadly, your next choice came out a little too late for you to watch Sam on Boff's Island on it, but in the absence of anything I can use as a clip, here's something really bizarre. Okay, that was the Mike Flowers Pops doing TBC 15 as part of their Bowie medley. But it's a different type of TV that you're going to be talking about, Meryl. What is it? It's the Roadstar, and I've actually got it on my lap because I've still got it in the house. It was a portable television from the early 80s 
that you could plug into the lighter socket of your car. So basically you could watch television in the car. I seem to remember it coming with warnings that you won't do it whilst driving. But what it looks like is it looks like a television set. So a small box, about half the size of a shoebox. The screen is about the size of a mobile phone. But it looks like a television. It's got dials and switches and it's very sturdy. My mum went to a phase in the early 80s getting very excited about tech. One of the things I said to you, I, I couldn't talk about this because I just cannot remember the name of it, but there was a catalogue that you used to get which had lots of tech things in it, which my mum was obsessed with this catalogue. It had, the main thing it had were key rings that whistled when you clapped. So my mum just really wanted to be progressive and get things. So, so I had a portable television in the car to watch as a child of about 11 or 12. And one of the problems with it was that the cable wasn't very long. So even though it said you mustn't watch it while you're driving, if it was plugged into the lighter socket, which was at the front of the car, so I know some cars don't even have lighter sockets now, so that was at the front of the car, it didn't actually stretch all the way to the back of the car. So I could never watch it while we were moving. So, so now, for instance, where people put DVD screens in the back seat, that's for very long car journeys, I couldn't do that. So what would happen was we would drive somewhere and we'd get there early so that I could sit in the car and watch some telly for 20 minutes <laughs> because we had to be parked for me to do it. So it just felt a bit odd in the end. I, I only remember using it a few times because it was just pointless. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me as the kind of thing where I was associated this kind of thing with when there was a, a function that people couldn't get out of. And, you know, it was a bit like a lost sitcom episode of this. They needed to know the score in the match. And so they would sneak some kind of device like this in. You know, I remember in school, a kid having a, a Walkman earphone running up his sleeve when it was some minor member of the royal family visited the school and gave a long speech. And he was listening to the football through this thing on his Walkman, through his sleeve with his ear against his hand and sort of relaying the score to everyone else in sort of coded his fingers. You couldn't sneak it anywhere. It's literally the size of shoebox. It's, it's quite, you know, it's quite sturdy. Hold on. That, that's what it feels like. It's a, oh, God, so much stuff fell off. <laughs> and it's got a huge antenna as well because it, it was a dial. You had to move the dial, like a radio. Yeah. Picture, and it was that thing as well, like like a shower, that the picture was always just there. Like, <laughs> it would be a nightmare. Moving the aerial around would be a nightmare. So it was really important. You couldn't sneak it anywhere. But I also think it's kind of... I was thinking about it that, like, we would never have DVD screens in the car now. Mm. Never give my kids iPads to watch telly in the car. I think because I had that attitude of, well, I tried that and it didn't work. Mm. Uh, but what happened with us was we tried so much early tech that didn't work. It's made me kind of think, oh, well, that doesn't work. It's a bit like somebody driving the first ever car and saying, well, I don't want to drive a car because it's really cold. There's no ceiling and there's only one seat. I keep <laughs> Well, I mean, most cars had the radio, which parents somehow seem to manage to break in a convenient way where it only went on to the stations they liked. But mentioning the dial on it, I mean, that's like you used to get on the black and white portable. That's made me think, presuming you could plug this into the mains... Did you ever sneakily watch anything you weren't supposed to on it? It's portable enough to do that, surely. No, I wasn't like that. The thing is, as I will find out because of one of my choices, my mum was quite, um, well, my mum was an old hippie, but she was also part of the sort of pro-sex feminist movement of the late 60s, early 70s. So she was very sort of open with me about stuff. So actually, I never had to sneak 
anything. It was just on the telly. So she would, you know, if there was something on the telly that was a bit late, and she'd go, oh, you're old enough to understand this. And I saw quite a lot of stuff that I really shouldn't have done. So, no, the thought of sneaking a telly into my room to watch something was the complete opposite. My room was a haven from my mother's inappropriateness. <laughs> You see, if I did anything, I would go into my room and read an Enid Blyton. <laughs> Another reason that we never really used the Road Star as well was, was we were very telly adults. We, we, we mm. a lot. I mean, one of the things with my mum liking tech was we had a video recorder way before most of my friends did. And my mum would video lots and lots of things. So it was almost like, you know what, I really don't need to watch some more telly now. Especially because she videoed everything, so we didn't miss anything. I bet you were like whatever you wanted from the video shop as well. Possibly. She did have barriers, it's just her barriers were further away than other people's. So, for instance, I remember a very embarrassing moment in the video shop, which I've never actually forgiven the guy for, that when my mum was single and had a boyfriend, we went back and we took our videos back, and then he held up one and said, you've not rewound your porn, love. Ooh. On purpose. Yeah. You know, he shouted it across the room. That's not as funny as he thinks it is. Exactly. He did it on purpose to shame her, and, and it's, it's one actually of being a single parent that a lot of people don't realise is you've got to try and have some kind of single sex life whilst also having an appropriate life to being a parent whereas when you're married like me and my husband barely touch each other so it's quite easy to be appropriate well that's a good moment for me to move on to something else that came up while we were discussing the road star which was so I we both had the canon star writer i'm guessing it would be the 95 model even though that came out apparently in 1991 but that meant so much to me. It's what I did all my... All those early fanzines of mine that now go for silly money on eBay, so I wish I kept all the unsold copies that are throwing them away. I remember sitting there for hours with that, measuring with a ruler how many letters to leave blank so I could stick a photocopy photo in. It was the future. I'd never seen anything like it when I first got it. What the Canon Star Writer was, it was an early word processor, I guess. So what you had to do in those days was you... Oh, God, it's got all my... It's the Star Writer 30, because I've taken the lid off it. It's got all my... Oh, my God, it's got all my stickers all over it. Wow. So I've got to, it must have had an issue with the return button, because I've got a big red thing saying, don't press return unless you're sure. <laughs> so it must have done that thing where it sent it somewhere. And I've always got loads of stickers saying, save it, have you saved it, have you saved it? So it didn't have any autosave. But, yes, it looks like a typewriter, but it has a printer attached. Yeah. So at the time, you either had a typewriter which typed out onto paper by banging a metal key through ink or you had a computer but in those days you didn't really have a computer at home so in an office there would be a computer that was hooked up to a general huge printer that everybody was just attached to so what this was was it was a way of printing out documents from a typewriter at home and because it was quite an early prototype of that God, it looks really whizzy. I'm just moving the screen because the screen moves up and down. Yeah. Because it had, what is it, you know, it's a screen where the words are lit up on it. So like on your laptop, you have to move it up and down to make sure you can see it, depending where the sunlight is. So it's got that. And it looks just like a computer. Mm. But it's got this ink cartridge. But the thing that was so frustrating about it was that nothing was transferable. Once this tech starts to get a bit old and you started using... I'm trying to think what I would have used after this. Possibly just going straight onto the home computer, yeah. So once you had a home computer, you couldn't transfer what was on this. No. To that. So everything you did was just 
in this Canon Starwriter. So all of my CVs, I used to use it to type out my own. Uh, must have been... What year did you say it was? The model I had came out in 92, but they can't have started until the very late 80s, I think. Yeah, so no, in the 90s would have made sense. So I used it to type out CVs and just things for work. But then as the technology, you, you stopped being able to get the ink cartridges. So it's got a very specific ink cartridge that you had to get. Yeah. Not like now, where printers pretend you can only use <laughs> and then you buy them from Tesco and then you get loads of notices going, are you sure this is <laughs> It doesn't feel genuine. So all of my CVs and all of my work were stuck inside this machine without me having any way to transfer them to another machine. It was almost a bit dystopian when it went out of fashion because it's like, you know those films where people get erased from the internet? Mm. It was like that. All of my my identity was inside my star writer and I had no way of printing it out. Well, I found that a couple of years ago and when I did one of my, well, they're self-published anthologies that I do, but this is why I'm able to do things like this. One called the Campbell Green Procrastination Society where I did in the print version each feature I did in the, like the one about David Bowie's Tim Machine that I reused. I did it in the style of pages from Q or whatever. There was one about Wait Till Your Father Gets Home and I thought, that's like something that would have been in one of my really early fanzines in the early 90s. So I'll do it like it did on the Star Writer. I spent weeks looking for the font Swiss, which is the one I used. It was a bespoke one. There was nothing like it out there. I could not find a good enough equivalent. So I just had to think, do you know what? Nobody is actually going to go and compare this. <laughs> if they do, perhaps I should be calling the police about them anyway. Yeah, my whole life is still inside this machine. My, my life is the early 90s, my early CVs. So everything just had to be retyped out again. And things like my early material when I'd start writing sketches and stuff. It's just all in here just to be forgotten. For it's probably why I've never thrown it away. I'm probably waiting <laughs> when I just, I get round to plugging it in and copying it all out. What was really good about it was it made you feel kind of really independent especially as, as young 20s, early teens. You had this mode of, like you said, you know, you could print a magazine mm. without having to work in an office or take it. The other thing you would have to do in those days was take it to a copy shop. Yes. And I would remember my mum would go to bed and I'd be up tapping away on my star writer, sending out letters to people. But I seem to remember the other thing, now you might remember this best than me. If you didn't have the ink cartridge, there was a thermal option. Oh, I didn't know that. I, I feel like it, because we would go and buy thermal paper. Mm. There was an option that if you couldn't have the ink cartridge, you would put the thermal paper in and it would kind of burn the letters into the paper. But that was never anything you could send somebody. Like, you couldn't... <laughs> <laughs> thermal paper because it would just look like I don't know like you like you'd rolled it up and put it in a bottle and sent it from a <laughs> from a shipwreck <laughs> it looked blurry and weird and it would be instantly put in the nutters pile it'd be like somebody a letter written with green ink you know mm. you are right though it was like that was the revolution point of all that people say it was the arrival of the internet I think it was the arrival of things like this because, you know, I'd done sort of fanzines before that with people who'd gone on to become much more successful than me. But it, it was all done on, you know, your dad's typewriter in an afternoon. You were limited to like maybe two sheets of A4 if you wanted to actually have it, you know, reproducible within your budget. But with this, it must have been like when people heard the Sex Pistols and thought, you know, I can do that. I don't have to spend decades learning my instrument. It was like that. I suddenly thought, I can write about children and the wheelies and nobody can stop me. Yeah. You know, it's, whether anyone wants to read it is another question. But yeah, that was such a moment. And also it did have a handle. It, well, it has got a handle. I've got it in my hand. <laughs> you could, you know, you could take it out with you, just like a laptop. I mean, I, that 
days, it's an early laptop. But even with a laptop now, you can't print out. No. I take my laptop down to, well, I guess you don't have to now. You, you, you just email it. But you could do exactly the same thing with this. But you could just take it down to Weatherspoon, get your free coffee, and sit there and type out all your material. And boom, you're away. And, it, it, you know, yeah, I had an early laptop. And I had an early laptop culture because of that. We would take it on holiday, you know? Did you write much on holiday? My job in life was to find celebrities. And so if we were in a hotel and there was a celebrity in the hotel, which there often was because my mother would consciously book hotels near theatres where celebrities stayed, I was then to present them with a CV. It was very much an ongoing torture of my life as a child. Very bad memory of you know the term elevator pitch, which they have now, which is an American thing that you might be stuck in an elevator with a producer and you have to be able to tell them about your film in one sentence. When I was nine, ten, or eleven, uh, we were in a lift with Russell Harty, and my mother kind of kicked me. And I started performing various impressions for him, at which point he, he completely blanked me and just walked out, and it was crushingly embarrassing. Crushingly embarrassing. And he died a couple of years later, and I was genuinely pleased because it meant <laughs> it was only me, my mother, and him that had witnessed this terrible <laughs> event, and now there were no witnesses left. Well, sadly, I think we're going back from the Star Writer era to that era for your next choice, because this sounds like it was a very early piece of work of yours. Not really a clip of news here, so here's something tangentially related, sort of. another What's Happening, a quiz show which is based on the things that have been going on around the world over the last seven days or so. OK, that was Tommy Boyd introducing What's Happening, the children's ITV serious news quiz game show from the early 80s. Meryl, you won a competition in something called Telereporter. I did, which is probably the reason I, I remember it, for very selfish reasons, because when somebody sends you to Disneyland, you're going to remember them. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like when, you, when you've had boyfriends that bought you something really nice, you remember them more than the ones that didn't. Telereporter was kind of an ITV kids club magazine so they wanted you to sort of feel like you were a member well it was it was a club you joined a club called the telereporter club and then you got the magazine and as with the other things I didn't hook it out of the drawer before I started speaking to you so I'm actually looking for it while we're talking which is very unprofessional the thing is the reason I'm looking through everything is I live in my childhood home so when I'm looking for things I'm I'm pouring through you know postcards of my mother's and and old Argos catalogues from when my children were born and stuff like that. <laughs> a lot of stuff here. So yes, Telereporter, it just, it had articles about all of the ITV children's programmes. And it also had things where you could write in. You could be a telereporter. So you were meant to review things and send them in. And I think it was very short-lived. And it's the only thing I ever won was they had thing about yes just we're going to send one of you to disneyland tell us why you deserve a trip to disneyland and i wrote just the truth i had no thought about trying trying to win i just wrote there it is i found it i just wrote the truth that i would like to go to disneyland because my mother is a very hard working single mum and she really deserves a break and looking back on that i know that that is kind of a classic if i had sat down and tried to calculate what's going to pull a few hard strings <laughs> Thing that I can 
play to win a competition. But actually, you know, it was very sad, but it was my life. So at the time, I was like, oh my God, how the hell have I won this? And I really thought that they picked names out of the hat. But obviously, looking back, you know, I would say to somebody, oh, tell, it, tell them you're a single mum, you'll win. <laughs> it was the R, not just ITV, the Thames Television Children's Club. And this is volume, well, it's weird, it says volume two, number three. I really don't understand how that works with a magazine. No. Whether it was the second one or the third one. And you were a telebus, and I'll, we've kept this one because this is my report from Disneyland about my trip. Which, again, is very embarrassing because I'm wearing some really bizarre clothes. So it was when Princess Diana was very popular and I used to dress like Princess Diana, but sometimes she would wear, like, hunting gear. A 12-year-old child in hunting gear. <laughs> and, and the photograph of me on the aeroplane is me with a tiny little hat with a veil. Do you know this hat she wears? Yes! I'm a 12-year-old on an aeroplane, and my mother had purposely dressed me up as an English girl <laughs> for it to look noticeable on this plane to America. A bit like, she probably, you know, if my mother wasn't dead, she'd be dressing Nigel Farage now, because, you know, he sort of dresses in working-class English fancy dress. Yes. Like, he, he says, oh, what does Del Boy wear? I'll wear that. So I'm literally, I'm in a tweed jacket with a brown hat with a veil, talking to a girl with, who's got a cabbage patch doll, which I thought was terribly authentic. Mm. Yeah, and the runners-up won a trip to Cosgrove Hall Studios in Manchester. I would have wanted that. <laughs> yeah, they saw the set at Danger Mouse and Wind in the Willows. There was, briefly. That's I've forgotten all about this. When I was a student, I had a summer job in the Albert Dock in Liverpool. And there was a Cosgrove Hall kind of museum. It was an attraction in the Albert Dock that had closed a couple of years previously. And the previous guest on the show who I won't name, forced open the door and stole a Count Duckula cell and the drawing of Robin and Rosie from Cockleshell Bay. The justification was that they would probably have got skipped. So he was preserving them for the nation. I've said he now, that's going to narrow it down. But people are going to say, oh, who did he go to? No, actually, no, I better not say anyone giving away who it was. They will not want to be named. But I think they'll still go after them. I have no idea. Cosgrove and Hall are still active, I assume. So. I'd never heard of Teleporter, which is... I, I couldn't find out anything about it. We have a big announcement. So I've gone to the page, it's a big announcement. And they said that, so in the autumn, the club will be launched to the rest of the country. And we're changing the name to the Children's ITV Club. And it said that we would continue to get magazines. But I just don't remember. I only remember about three of the magazines ever coming out. And, and it was really nice. I mean, it's, there's loads of vouchers here to go to places like Longleat and um, the Edinburgh Wax Museum. It's a little bit like um, if you get a Blue Peter badge now, you can mm. these things. And there's also a big section here of, that you can get half price books of all of the ITV children's series. And that's a wow. display here of Marmalade Atkins books. Has it got Drama Rama Spooky, the book of that in there? Let's have a look. It might be the wrong year. There's Falk, which I was obsessed with. Nicola Cowper. Oh, yes. And there's rainbow books. And there's a video of Torval and Dean at the Olympics. Yes, yeah, spooky stories of the supernatural. And at the back, there's news from the studios. It's all about what's coming up. And there's like thing here going, there's going to be a new series of Button Moon coming. And I'm really not sure who they think they're aiming at this at. Mm. one of the problems. Because I was 13. So they're, send, they're, they're advertising Swalk with Nicola Cowper, which was a very modern, quite gritty drama at the time about having your first crush. Yeah. Trying to navigate being in love 
at a young age and whether you should be kissing people and stuff with then telling me that Button Moon is the <laughs> I don't care about my first kiss Swore cat that nobody remembers this when I describe it to them, but it's really burnt into my memory. The theme music was like a kind of altered images Kirsty McColl kind of song. It was really up to the minute. You don't remember it either. Until I saw this photo in this magazine, I completely forgotten Swark, but I Yeah, and like you say, it's a real contrast with Button Moon, isn't it? It's really odd that they're in the same magazine. Because <laughs> I don't know who they're aiming this at, which is possibly, like I say, possibly why it folded. So yeah, because they've got adverts for Sooty and also Swalk and Marmalade Atkins. <laughs> hear about Behind the Bike Shed. I can remember the theme. Oh, Tony Slattery wrote that. Let's go behind the bike shed. Let's go behind. And it had a section in it called John Raving's News Round, where it was one of the kids presented like a sort of roundup of playground gossip with kind of typical news music behind it. It has another one that was felt really big at the time that nobody remembers, like Swarks. And the really big one, I was surprised by the response I got when I mentioned this on Twitter recently, was Maggie on BBC Two. It was set in Scotland. It was about a girl who has the theme song by B.A. Robertson, of all people. You know, that, that was pretty cutting edge for when it came out. It related the fact that her parents wanted her to work in the factory and she wanted to go to university. And it was quite a kind of postcard records kind of vibe to it. But I think people just, they latched onto these at a time when it meant some in their life and then you move on from that phase of your life and unless you're you know obsessed with remembering old tv and so on you're gonna forget about it it's a bit like fancying someone at that age i mean what's been quite interesting i go to the 80s music retro weekend for the very elderly people <laughs> <laughs> all trying to sing along you know and people are saying and a lot of a lot of the singers are actually really Still, like they were mm. they're touring, so they're dancing. And I remember one day somebody shouting out, "Why aren't you jumping?" And I was like, "We all have weakened pelvic floors." <laughs> <laughs> um, but what they tried to do for a while, so they'd have these eighties weekends, and what they tried to do for a bit was go, "Well, look, everybody from the nineties is in their forties now. Mm. They've got the disposable income, so we'll have Saturday will be eighties, Sunday will be nineties, and nobody came. Yeah, nobody came to the nineties thing. And there's something about eighties culture." which isn't just about I remember when I was 13 or 14 but it's actually a bit more seismic mm. and I don't know what it was maybe it was the invention of computers maybe it was Channel 4 making everything just a bit sort of louder and grittier you know I remember cutting all my hair off in 1981 because everybody was suddenly a feminist and yeah it was a really strong culture change in the early 80s okay well moving on now to your next choice which is a show that I don't think was essential team viewing but you might be able to set me straight on that because I never saw this with being in the wrong region. Anyway, here's a clip from it with some very familiar voices, possibly unfamiliar to anyone outside London in this context, though. Janet, hello, are you all right? Yes, thank you. There's a bit in the Telegraph here, the, uh, the TV uh, column, and it says about this programme, there is a complaint from one reader that the accents on this show are often so called blimeyish it is impossible to understand what is being said. They must be thinking of Shaw Taylor. Yeah, I don't know who they're talking about. I just can't credence that. Mm. What a nasty person. Yes. I've been at elocution lessons every night this week. 
I'm a jaw transplant in the summer, so when I come back, I'll sound like a Rodine schoolgirl in the autumn. I'd like to hear that. So the Daily Mail. <laughs> I'll wear a gym slit if you like, Michael. Right. <laughs> no, I won't. Okay, that was very obviously Michael Aspel and Janet Street Porter talking about viewer complaints about their voices. But Meryl, what was the show? I feel guilty now because I didn't realise it was a local show. Because you know, when you're a kid, you just watch what's on the telly. So I feel a bit. I feel a bit like I'm being London Metropolitan Elite. <laughs> it was the six o'clock show, which was on. Now you will correct me if I'm wrong. Was it on every day at six o'clock, or was it just Friday? I am not 100 percent sure. Some sources say Friday. Some say every day. I feel like it was every day. Do you know what? I think what might have happened while I'm thinking that way is that I think it was every day, and then it moved to Friday. And what it was, so it was Michael Aspel, Danny Baker, and Janet Street Porter. I know when you did some research, you found some other presenters, but the only other one I remember was Fred Housco. I guess that is the thing about it being local London, is, is they are very kind of London people. So apart from Michael Aspel being softly spoken, you know, Danny Baker and Janet Street Porter are geezers. <laughs> Fred Housco, of course, is a taxi driver, so he was a black cab driver who won Mastermind, which at the time was, you know, ever so amusing because, you know, poor people who drive taxis aren't meant to be clever. So he kind of was on the show talking about London because, of course, he drove around London all the time. Yeah, I always liked him when I was a kid because his name was Fred Housco, and, you know, like, taxi drivers go to houses, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised nobody made more of that, really. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so, yeah. It's a bit of nominative determinism there. So, again, a bit like me um, winning a holiday from Talent Reporter. I think the main reason that I remember the Six O'Clock show was that I used to like doing an impression of Janet Street Porter. I did a lot of impressions when I was a child, but they were mainly copying other impressionists. So Tracy Allman and Lenny Henry would do somebody, and then I would do that person. Almost as a way of learning how, like, oh, well, look what Tracy Allman's doing with her face. So I think Tracy Allman had done Janet Porter, and then, uh, no, it wasn't Tracy Allman, Pamela Stevenson. Oh, on the Nine O'Clock News, yes, yes. So Pamela Stevenson would do somebody, and then I would do an impression of an impression. So I actually had an impressions act when I was 10 or 11 that I did in a talent contest and at Butlin, and in our local dance show and it became a bit of a thing I ended up getting an agent because I could do impressions so well but they were always second hand they were always via Pamela Stevenson or Lenny Henry <laughs> <laughs> but anyway so I did an impression of Janet Street Porter which was obviously quite good because my mum sent a tape of it to the six o'clock show and they brought me in to do a bit but what was quite odd about it yeah so A it was really amazing that I met Janet Street Porter who at the time was a huge icon she was a very forthright woman on the television which you know we, we did have actually quite a lot of forthright women on the television in the 80s probably more so than in the last few years but there was something a bit accessible about Janet Street Porter because she was talking directly to camera and so I went into the studio and she said I thought your impression of me was way better than Pamela Stevenson's like that so I was very happy but what she did was she had brought in her own jumper and her own makeup and at the time she had quite wild hair with colours in it so she'd brought in some hair chalk so I came into the studio and then she made me over as her. But I was wearing her glasses, so I actually had no memory. My memories of doing Janet Street Porter on the six o'clock show, I couldn't see anything. <laughs> wearing this adult woman's glasses, so I could see nothing, which possibly might have made me more confident, but I don't remember people looking at me or laughing <laughs> for being in this sort of bottle. Also, the other weird thing about it was that, so I did a cabaret accredited impressions and my mum would write me jokes for them, but what Janet Street Porter did was she gave me one of her own anecdotes, which was about how her mother was a dinner lady, and because she was a dinner lady, she would 
cooked dinner lady type food at home, which meant that she grew up eating. I think I can even remember lumpy mashed potato and over stewed cabbage. And that's the reason that I'm so tall, because none of the other kids ate their school dinners. But I had to eat my school dinners, and that's why I'm so ridiculously tall. And she gave me this anecdote, but it actually wasn't funny. It was like just one of her anecdotes. That felt a bit weird as well. And then because I had been on the telly, <laughs> after that, whenever I did go to a talent contest, when I did Janet Street Porter, I would do that anecdote. But of course, because the rest of my act was kind of one-liners, it would just really slow it down. <laughs> that I was doing this quite long anecdote about having a mother who made me eat cabbage, which, of course, people in the audience would just sit and go, where is this going? <laughs> Why is this child telling us a story? Well, that in itself is quite indicative of the way that this was a genuine... The six show was a genuine phenomenon at the time because it wasn't what news programs were supposed to do. I mean, nearest we got in the Granada region was Granada reports on the Friday would let its hair down a bit, which meant that Bob Greaves would go out and meet the Lars or something. <laughs> it would still be very, very formal but, you know, it wasn't like it was the rest of the week. And the BBC tried to copy the 6 o'clock show a couple of times. There was Weekend and Friday People, none of which really worked because they picked kind of like, I remember I can't remember which one of Frank Bruno presented one of them, and he was not a natural presenter. They got completely the wrong idea about it, just thought, ooh, who and what is popular, put that on. And also it was the BBC, so it was still quite still quite buttoned down, really. Well, the Six O'Clock show got sort of taken off eventually, didn't it, by the IBA, thought it should be more serious. The odd thing as well, though, is that Danny Baker and Janet Stuporter are both quite serious people. Mm. I think there was something that happened with the 80s. I think Paulie Yates fell foul of the similar feeling, that somebody like Janet Stuporter, who had blue hair and wild glasses and glittery jumpers couldn't possibly be serious because she's a woman that looks a bit odd and actually now what we know about Janet Street Porter I mean I've met her a few times since she's actually quite terrifying she's, she's extremely outspoken extremely serious and Paulie Yates fell foul of the similar thing of well she's wearing a big pink dress and she's got bleached hair she can't possibly be intelligent whereas actually if you properly listened to what she said or read her columns she was incredibly fiercely intelligent and Danny Baker was kind of a bloke version of that because he was a geezer and as we know now Danny Baker very opinionated but because he's like always moved and I don't know like I'm not sure if he was on television before the six o'clock show or whether that was his TV debut he's another one of those people like I've mentioned with others where when Danny Baker got famous I felt like I was ahead of the curve because I had watched the six o'clock show every single night so I was like yeah yeah I know him but he's so animated and, and he would absolutely him and Janet she put like I don't remember Michael Aspel being in it it had air of <laughs> and this might be a really weird thing to say it's like but there's a certain air of round the horn about it in that Michael Aspel would just sit there being serious and middle class and had all these sort of howling monkeys around <laughs> Danny Baker jumping out of his chair to talk about you know air pollution or something well what the hell's going on in London then but I loved it and that's another interesting thing is that I was a child I was about 9 or 10 and it was a news program that I loved and I loved watching it and actually you know if you can make news local news accessible and exciting to kids then you're obviously doing something incredibly right like you say it's quite sad that people try to play down Janet's reporter these days I mean a while back this was quite a surprise in England so I was trying to explain to some of my friends why as a youngster, I really like people like Malcolm McLaren, Tony Wilson and so on. 
where they were allowed into the mainstream, but they weren't off it. I kind of liken it to Baron Samadhi in Live and Let Die. Like, he's part of the gang, but he's not beholden to them. And, you know, he sits there burning tarot cards and so on. Not that they quite did this, but one of my friends sort of got it and said, did you like Janet Street Porter as well? I was like, yes, I've forgotten that, you know, I kind of saw her as like, in a way, an aspirational figure because she got up people's noses just by being herself, not by setting out to, just by being somebody who was erudite, could talk about stuff, could formulate opinions, but wasn't supposed to because she looked a bit funny. Yes, exactly. And and for me, I've got goofy teeth and I was bullied at school for having goofy teeth. Not seriously. I'm not seriously bullied at school later because as I got older, I grew a full moustache. That was when it properly kicked in. When you've got goofy teeth, there being somebody who is that ballsy and that confident whose teeth are crazy, you know. And she was known for that. That was the thing that you do when you do an impression of Janet Street Porter. You stick your front teeth out as far as possible. But that was also quite important for us, looking at somebody going, well, you look a bit funny, but people are taking you seriously. And it's weird as well, because I never, I don't put impressions into my set. And people say I should, but I've, A, I've not kept up with it, so all my impressions would be of yay. But it just, I always feel weird about crowbarring something in. Like, if Janet Street Porter did something now that I wrote some material about, <laughs> I did an impression of Ariana Grande in my show because there's a bit where I, I go through the lyrics of one of her songs and then I say well none of you know what the lyrics are because the way she sings it is because <laughs> she sings like Pingu so these days all the impressions are kind of accidental well speaking of impressions that brings me so neatly into your next choice which I have to confess I've forgotten about this until you brought it up but here's the theme music which people might recognise as a song in its own right they probably won't have any idea that it was ever a TV theme but it was. When we first moved to New York, we had a great apartment that was dirt cheap. And we found out why it was so cheap. Our friend Amy said there was a great apartment in her building. Dirt cheap, but it's a hotel for women. Okay, we made one adjustment. Now these other ladies know us as Buffy and Hildegard. But they also know us as Kip and Henry, Buffy and Hildy's brothers. I am uh, crazy about the blonde. <laughs> This experience is going to make a great book. See, it's all perfectly normal. Okay, that was the dulcet tones of not Billy Joel singing My Life. Meryl, why was he doing this? Well, I'm the opposite. I only associate that song with the show. It was a theme tune to a sitcom called Bosom Buddies. There's quite a few obscure sitcoms that I remember, but this one is the only one that I've literally never heard anybody else ever mention. And the big thing about it was it was Tom Hanks' first TV job that I know of. It was the first time that I had seen him. And it was a very young Tom Hanks who I felt utterly in love with, like completely in love with. And again, like with some of the other things I've mentioned, when he got famous, why doesn't anybody know who this person is? It's Tom Hanks, who's quite clearly gorgeous, and I saw him first. I had very much, very territorial about him as well, <laughs> when he became a huge heartthrob after Splash and Big, and I was like, I saw him first, where were you when Bosom Buddies were gone? <laughs> you latecomers, you don't deserve Tom Hanks. Yeah, but Bosom Buddies was a sitcom which absolutely, completely ripped off Some Like It Hot. 
When I say that, you can instantly tell which one Tom Hanks was playing. So Tom Hanks was playing the Tony Curtis character. It was about two guys, two young men who couldn't find anywhere to live in New York. And the only place they could find, which I think is because one of their sisters or one of their secretaries, possibly. So these two guys need somewhere to live in New York. One of their friends or relatives is living in a wooden, kind of a YWCA situation. It was called the Susan B. Anthony Hotel, but only women are allowed to live there. So they dress up as women to go and live there. And after they've been living there for a little while, there's a woman called Sunny, who is played by Donna Dixon, who is the Marilyn Monroe character. Even like in some like it hot, she's called Sugar, and in this case she was called Sunny. Because Tom Hanks' character falls in love with her, he has to then also come in as a man. So he pretends to be the brother, and he comes in and sits in the lobby waiting for his sister to come down. And there was a lot of comedic business about how she never came down because <laughs> of course she is him and there were little catchphrase things i remember that sonny was meant to be quite stupid but he really loved that about her and when he was being the woman he used to kind of go oh sonny 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 but my main memory of it was tom hanks being unspeakably gorgeous and me being about 10 or 11 and having very early kind of, oh my God, this man is gorgeous feelings. And also Donna Dixon was married to Dan Aykroyd. And she again, she was in Spies Like Us, which of course flopped horribly. Oh, of course. In the reviews of Spies Like Us, one of the things people didn't like was this whole sort of feeling amongst the reviewers that Dan Aykroyd had crowbarred his talentless wife into it who had never done anything. And of course I was like, no, <laughs> but some buddies. She's fantastic. She's one of my idols. How dare you speak about her like this? And it was a real shame that like the film that she made was with her husband because I think it made people look down on her a little bit. Well, it is interesting that it looks like it didn't do, although it went to two series in America, it was never that big. But over here, I think it was shown last thing at night on a Friday on ITV. So it was the sort of time slot where, you know, when you're a kid, you think, this is my programme, even if it's not, even this Arthur Haley's Hotel or something. But it was made by, well, two of the producers, Miller and Milkis, had previously made Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Mork and Mindy, and Petrocelli, weirdly, that legal drama. But they were joined by another producer with the surname. Sorry, I haven't looked up your first names, guys. I just remember the caption card. Somebody Boyette joined them and they did this. And Joni Loves Chachi, which is the, the one that dropped the ball of the Happy Days franchise. And Good Time Girls, which is a notorious flop. So ironically, the man who joined them wasn't there when the Fonz jumped the shark. But that's when they jumped the shark. But then they got rid of Milkis. And so Miller and Boyett did Full House, Valerie and Perfect Strangers. So they got rid of the one with the proven track record and somehow got back to full strength. I don't understand that at all. Yeah, well, now I might be imagining this, but they showed Bosom Buddies on British television before they showed Laverne and Shirley. Yeah. Again, I got very into. In fact, my husband calls me Squiggy and that's a Laverne and Shirley reference. I seem to remember, and I might be imagining this, that they would do the Mickey take at the beginning of Bosom Buddies, the two guys dressed as women who walk along the streets and then they'll do the shlemiel, shlemazzle, pass and pepper, Laverne and Shirley. But of course, because I'd never seen Laverne and Shirley, I just thought they were doing a weird thing. And then later on when I saw Laverne <laughs> They're copying Tom Hanks. It's like, that's one weird thing about, I mean, I, I presume a lot of people who've come on your podcast have said this, is that when you remember something nobody else remembers, you get all the references mixed up. Like I thought that Bagpuss was a poor rip-off of Sam <laughs> <laughs> 
Like there's a few times where you go, no, Laverne and Shirley are taking the mickey out of Buzz and Buddies, not the other way around, which of course is completely false. Life's full of these little things where you just take away the reference and suddenly it's meaningless. Yeah, Buzz and Buddies. And it's a shame that there aren't more clips online because it was a really good show. And I remember it being very funny and very physical. Tom Hanks would do stuff like jump over sofas. And I didn't know that it was improvised, but it was extremely funny. And I'm, I'm wondering as well, how early on in the American tradition of doing improv comedy on film and television that was. Because now, a lot of stuff is improv, and it's thought to be quite a modern thing, quite a sort of Paul Fee, bridesmaid kind of way of performing. So to find out that they were doing a partly improv sitcom back in the early 80s. Well, that might be why it didn't really catch on at the time, I suppose. It probably was one of the first. But there are a lot of American sitcoms from that time that have disappeared down the sort of black hole, because for years... The one I could find no proof existed, apart from one of my sisters remembered it, was when Channel 4 first started, they showed a very short-lived American sitcom called Mama Maloney about a, an Italian-American baker who was... I think the theme song with each verse, it added a thing that was like, she's the greatest baker, pasta maker, wide as an acre mama in the world. And it went on and on like that. And it was dreadful, but nobody else remembered it. And there was nothing on the internet about it. It was one of those things, like Tank from the Walker's Crisps advert, where for years, there was no reference to it. And, you know, people say, ooh, I started to think, did they make it up? It's like, no, I know, I knew I didn't make these things up. It's just because there was that weird time frame between videos becoming a thing and everyone having a video when there were no recordings things out there. Exactly. So, like I say, my mum got a video recorder as soon as they were available. And we used to be very regular at radio rentals. Everything in our house was rented, which was odd because we lived in the house for quite a long time. My mum didn't need to rent things, but I think she thought it was cool. And that's not something you get now. So in those days, when there was something big tech that came out and you weren't sure whether you wanted to go for it, you could go to the shop and rent a video player, which meant that if it broke down, which they did quite regularly, somebody would come and fix it. And if you thought after a while, you know what, I actually don't want a video player, you could just take it back. <laughs> so we got one really early on and videoed everything. And one thing about me being an avid Who Dares Wins fan was I follow Jimmy Mulville on Twitter. And one day somebody said to him, why are there no clips of Who Dares Wins online? And he said, well, because it was a topical show, they never saved any of it. And it, it's not on Channel 4 On Demand. And I replied with, you know, I've got every single episode. Video. <laughs> that was you. I remember that happening. <laughs> you. Yeah. Jimmy said at the time that he didn't think it existed anywhere. And so I said, I've got one on video. And he replied to me. And of course, he's now the CEO of Hattrick Productions. And he said, can you bring them all in? So I went into Hattrick with this box of videos. And that was really nice as well, because I saw Jimmy for the first time since I was 14. And I used to hang around because I had a bit of a crush on him. So I used to hang around waiting for him to come out, which he never did. He wasn't particularly friendly during. I don't know what I could say because he's been very public about this. So I don't know if I should say this. What I didn't know when I was 14 was that was right at the height of his coke habit. So when I meet him now, even though he's the CEO of Patrick Productions, he's incredibly important. We sit there and talk as if I'm 14 again. And we talk about what life was like then. And he asks, you know, asks about what I went on to do. And it's interesting because I was a bit of a stalker. <laughs> <laughs> like I would literally I was being bullied at school and the only thing that made me happy was going to television recordings so if my mum couldn't get tickets for a television recording she would literally just put me in the car and drive me to a television studio because it would just panic her she'd be like if I don't do this my daughter's going to be crying all weekend so she would literally just drive to win. but actually everybody from that time seems to remember me very fondly well not everybody but that will be an entirely other anecdote because <laughs> I sometimes say I used to say in my show that 
I have a very young face, even though I'm very old. I have, still have the same face as the teenage me. So sometimes I do go to like BBC parties and people will jump out of their skin. Like Stephen Fry once literally jumped because I was that freaky 15-year-old that used to turn up to everything. <laughs> and one day I was on Twitter saying I'm doing a script reading of my sitcom and I need some actors who are willing to give up a day for a couple of pizzas. And Saul Pope, who's been in Only Fools and Horses, he said, do you want me to come? And I'm going, mate, I can literally only pay you in pizza. And he's going, oh. <laughs> Really nice just to have him in the room as well, because then I could say to him, you've worked on, mate, he was in Blackadder, he was in Only Fools and Horses, how does my script compare? You know, what should I do? But again, we've gone off topic. Well, I was only going to say, I hope that what's covered in your last choice wasn't rented, unlike the tech in your house. I went through a couple of potential ideas for clips for this, but they were all a little bit misleading. Let's just say they were the theme tunes from things that don't get shown in polite society now. Here's a little bit of music which kind of evokes that era, but possibly in the wrong way. Okay, from 1981, that was Mark Armand singing about the joys of jumping in and out of Soho doorways, clutching brown paper bags. Now, that's a little bit different to what you chose in Merrill, but what is it? That's such a good choice, though, because when Mark Armand was singing about sleazy, neon-lit, PVC-clad people, this catalogue was always the thing I thought of. So that's an amazing choice without you knowing that. So, are we talking about the International Exotic Glamour Wear Shop Around Collection? I believe we are. It's a difficult one to Google. Again, if I didn't still have a copy of this catalogue under the bed, I would have thought I'd invented it, because I always knew it as Shop Around International, but I think, in the end, I found a link view which was International Exotic Glamour Wear. So, <laughs> my mum was single. My dad had died when I was seven. Also, my mum wasn't pretty. She had a really nice figure, though. So she was very into buying things that made her look good. She was very into being a single woman and having a sex life. It's interesting as well that I'm quite, you know, one of the things I've written my solo show about is that I've always seemed to be a bit hypersexual. Like, I seem to talk about it more than other people. Well, talk about it more than other women and think about it more. And I know that's a huge generalisation. But every time I think it's a huge generalisation, people say, me no Meryl I know nobody like you <laughs> like I follow I follow porn stars on Twitter and I've got there's so many other women I know who go yeah like I'm really into the sex worker industry I'm really into like you know supporting them and I go oh which porn stars do you follow I don't follow porn stars <laughs> and every now and then people say to me you know are you damaged and of course I am a comedian of course I'm damaged but that's never kind of added up in my brain as to why I find sex so fascinating and I actually think it's this I actually think it's because I would watch my mum dressing herself up and buying these really glamorous clothing. We would go to places like Butlins and she'd get off with a drummer from the, from the band in the dance hall. And I think that's actually the thing of me just watching her transforming herself and watching how happy she was transforming herself. So this catalogue, this was her underwear catalogue, which I would sneak out of her room. And this kind of became, as I was a teenager in my formative years, the sort of equivalent of a naughty magazine. I mean, it has got almost naked women in it. And what was quite interesting was you got a bit embarrassed looking at it online because, of course, online, I guess, the pictures that they would reserve now would be like the PVC corsets and the, they've got these really odd bras which are nipple peephole bras. So they've literally only got a tiny little hole cut out that you're meant to 
inside your nipple in you. What is the purpose of that? I really don't understand. I mean, the reason I, I've got this catalogue is close to mind at the moment is a friend recently said to me, oh, agent provocateur and their split crotch panties. And I was like, no, 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 mate. Split crotch panties have been around for years because they were in this. But what is the point of a split crotch panty? <laughs> Literally no point. They are the soup of the underwear world. So you know, like with soup, it's like, mate, either drink something or eat something. What is this? <laughs> Split crotch panties are the same. They they have n- literally no purpose. <laughs> there's nothing erotic about, you know, you can't, there's nothing shielding you that you have to peel away. <laughs> there's nothing, and they're not comfortable. And at the same time, you're not naked. It's just, just like a garnish. <laughs> They had loads of split crotch panties, which I seem to remember at the time, as in my early teens, sort of trying to work out what the hell was going on there. But the beginning of the catalogue, which I was going to say you probably couldn't find online, are very long, glamorous nightgowns, like absolutely floor-length. The one here I'm looking at on the front page, it's, it's bright red, and it's satin, and it's floor-length, and then there's black lacy cups wearing a big red feather boa so she actually looks like somebody from a cowboy movie in the 40s and those are the things my mum would buy she would buy these floor length nighties which you know after I would go to bed she had I think one or two steady boyfriends in her later life and and they were absolutely for the steady boyfriends that she would put on one of these long glamorous nightgowns to open the door a bit you know my mum was an adult in the 70s that whole kind of thing that we see now of milkman or, or stand up on the buses opening a door and there's a woman in a negligee that was her and actually i kind of you know we don't really have a concept of that now 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 if you watch an adult movie they open the door and the woman's naked they were wearing a floor length nightgown that she very slowly takes off and i just thought it was the most ridiculously glamorous thing so i would just look through this catalogue endlessly and of course as i got slightly older i'd start having stirrings and it goes from the glamorous and then it goes to these things that were called play suits which are literally just it's just a strip of cloth, a long strip of cloth. The thing they're most similar to now is when you have a baby carrier that's just a long strip of cloth where you've tied the baby to you. They're literally a long strip of cloth where you tie a bit of it over your boobs and a bit of it down over your fanny. They're charging, I mean, even then, £7.50 for just a strip of cloth that someone's tied around themselves. <laughs> it was a combination of being both absolutely glamorous and absolutely baffling at the same time. But at this whole world that I wasn't party to, that I desperately... The women in it looked so beautiful and it was a big part of my... You know, when you're a teenager, there are kind of two types of erotica. There's the erotica of, I want that person to be with me. But there's also the erotica of, I want to be that person. And I wanted to be every single woman in this catalogue, apart from the ones in the crotchless panties. Even then, I thought that was weird. And then they've got a section, so you get sort of halfway through with the baby dolls. And that's another thing people don't talk about anymore, baby doll night. And then there's a PVC section. That was the other nice thing about it, was it kind of got more depraved the first (laughs) (laughs) So it started off with long evening dresses, and then suddenly there's somebody who's just wearing PVC gloves and nothing else. But that was also quite nice. It shows that in the early 80s, there were like, in this catalogue, at least four or five different ways of being sexy. I don't know, this might be me being old. But these days, it seems to be one way of being sexy. And like, if you do go on to adult films, such as I know a lot of people disapprove of, and I know I should disapprove of more, but I find them fascinating, is a woman who's 17 on an adult film site will often look exactly the same as a woman who's 40. So they'll both have the long hair that's been very straightened and lip fillers and have 
bodies that look exactly the same that have had the same thing shaved off or removed or made bigger. And I almost think, like, what's the point? What's the point of clicking on someone who's in their late 40s if they look exactly the same as someone who's 17? And that was really nice about this catalogue as well, was that not only was I looking at it going, oh, look at all of these beautiful women who I might become, but I had the choice of being long evening dress exotic woman or PVC boots woman. The other thing that I found fascinating as a child is an interesting thing that I don't know how many people can relate to. So my dad died when I was seven and he was quite ill from when I was four, but also he was a never nude. My dad would never be naked in front of me. He didn't want to frighten me with such a thing. And at the back of the catalogue is men's underwear. Now, as a child who had never seen a man, I knew that men had willies and I knew that willies were kind of, you know, banana shaped. I had no concept of testicles. Literally no concept at all. Nobody had told me testicles existed. There was no need for anybody to have told me they existed. Now, in sex education, even when they're quite small, like my son has had, they have biology lessons going, these are all the bits. But I had so they showed these men in pants and I expected men in pants to have this kind of long, <laughs> sort of long holster. <laughs> You know those novelty pants you get where you can look like an elephant's trunk, right? I thought that would be what men's pants looked like. And all of the men are wearing these things that are kind of round. And as a child, I had no concept of what that round thing was in the front of their pants. I thought what they'd done was taken their willy and sort of wound it round like a Cumberland sausage. <laughs> So I would look through all the women's bits and be like, oh, I want to be her, I want to be her. And then I would look at the men's bits and just be completely repulsed because, <laughs> in a kind of horror film way, I was like, not, not what is that within the pouch? <laughs> well, the reason I, when we were actually discussing this, I decided, you know, on the evidence of what was online, because, you know, how strange, men weren't interested in the publication details or anything when they're doing blog posts about it. I felt it seemed a bit sleazy, because what was out there reminded me of the sort of thing where, now, you know, there's a standing joke where people think they're really funny when they go, who goes around putting pornographic magazines in woodland? And like, well, it's actually kids, because there were certain places where these things were stashed by other kids because they'd nick them from their parents, they could not keep it in the house somewhere secret. Other kids seemed to somehow get hold of this stuff. There would be places they would be hidden. The two that I really remember clearly was there was a sort of waste ground alleyway going down to the prom in Liverpool, which is quite a risky place to hide it, because the prom at that point was like, it was like feral. It was full of Dominic Cummings types, like hiding behind bollards, waiting to steal bikes from other kids. There was always a chance it was going to be spotted by someone else there who would move it to another location, then that would be, ooh, who put that there? It was a kid who'd stolen it from a kid who'd stolen it. And similarly, the council tower block, quite often people would stash magazines in the maintenance cupboard on the ground floor. So again, it would be, who's put that in there? A kid that's nicked it, another kid had nicked it, put it to another place. That's why it was like a redistribution system. But the pictures that I saw were exactly the kind of thing that you would have got in the sort of thing that was stashed in those places. But it seems like it was more of a, a legit proposition, really. It wasn't just out to entertain thieving adolescents. No, well, the first page has got, you know, all the sizes that you can fit and it's got one of those photos that are actually quite, you know, now when they have television adverts for the Harmony catalogue and stuff, they've got two very happy people sitting next to each other going, well, we've been married for 20 years and now we have a large vibrating egg. You know, those sort of things. 
you mentioned Dominic Cummings, he always reminds me of a of a erotic egg. So on the front page is a photograph of a very cosy looking couple and he's in a jumper and she's looking at the camera because she's just opened a box which has got a red lacy thing in it. And there's lots of guarantees of quality. There's a photograph of the guy that runs the company, Mr. Cathar. What does he look like? He looks how you'd expect. He looks orange. <laughs> bespectacled in a grey suit and he has hair which you know in the early 80s when men had hair that looked like wigs yeah but might not have actually been a wig yes the fashion was to have a bit too much hair combed in, a, in an odd way but then you know it's like i say it really makes me wish that there was a culture of negligees now i mean i'm looking at a picture here of two women one brunette and one blonde and they're both in leopard print 90s very, very now very 2020 and the woman who's blonde she's got her hair just sort of piled up on her head in a really soft way which was very of the time and her dress is unzipped so she's got a lot of side boob going on and her legs sticking out but basically everything's covered apart from the side boob and yet it still looks beautifully sexy and she's growling because she's wearing leopard skin and i don't know i i talk a lot in my current show because it is about how much people expose themselves online that we don't seem to have that concept anymore that hiding something away is actually quite erotic it's like how i don't understand crotchless panties because to me the erotic thing about a panty is that there's a no entry there's this no entry sign that you have to negotiate your that there's actually like you know you've come to the last barrier you have to convince me to open this door <laughs> there's another dress here where it's completely sideless so her boobs are covered and there's a panel in front of her but her legs are sticking out both sides of it and i love all that stuff it was so glamorous but yeah i mean that's the thing being a girl we didn't have that culture of finding porn mags in bushes we, we didn't want to do that and we didn't want to go looking for them i say again massive generalization but i don't know any girls that do and back when we were kids i talk about this on stage as well and i love talking about this in front of young people because this baffles them but the only way you would see a porn film would be especially if you're a, a woman who was just you know your, your average woman in her early 20s would be you get an invite to a party and part of the invite would be graham is bringing his porn <laughs> and graham was nobody's friend the man who had some porn so he would be invited to the party much like a drug dealer would to provide the porn and be put in a room that had a video and you would go in and visit the porn and at this point young people always say to me what so did you all start having an orgy or something you go no no you didn't touch each other you weren't supposed to enjoy the porn you would go in look at it laugh at it and then leave and the only person that stayed in the room was graham like if you'd you know minding it like if you'd hired a bouncy car <laughs> So, yeah, I guess, I mean, maybe that is another reason why people say, oh, Meryl, you're different to other women, which I, I don't, again, I don't want women listening to this going, how dare you? But I did grow up leafing through this magazine of fairly dressed women, wanting to be them rather than have them. I'm heterosexual, but I guess maybe a lot of other women did. Well, in a sense, it's quite difficult to be, in inverted commas, nostalgic about any of that now, because like I was saying about, you know, the photos that had appeared online from this catalogue, it just looks wrong. For some reason, there is a sleazy taint to the early 80s, kind of even mild erotica. VHS seems very sleazy now. It just doesn't travel as nostalgia. It's really odd. And that's probably why I assume this poor catalogue will be a bit mucky. Maybe it's sensibilities, because I did show, like, I got this out and I showed it to my husband. And he was going, 
there's these bras which are which which we still have now but they're balcony bras but what you tend to have now is completely covered and actually i would say most of the underwear in this is very similar to agent provocateur which is kind of the mantle they've taken on so these ones are kind of like little trays where you present your breasts covering your breasts at all like none of this stuff is practical you wouldn't wear it to do the school run it's very much for entertainment but he said that he thought they looked horrible because of the way that they were of presenting the breast to you. I think they look really beautiful because I guess what I like about this catalogue is how natural the women are. And, and you've got, you know, I've got this page in front of me, actually, this is a bad example. Well, I know you can't see what I'm seeing, but it's because I want to describe it to you. We've, I've got a woman here who's obviously a little bit older, who's ginger, and you've got a blonde woman who's very round-faced, and then you've got a brunette woman with large curly brunette hair, which was very, you know, Barbara Dixon, very early. <laughs> she looks like Barbara Dixon or Kevin Keegan. And they've all clearly got their natural breasts and I've got nothing against people who want to, to enlarge their breasts but there's something beautifully natural and soft about all of it. All of the material looks probably very flimsy. It probably would have ripped the first time you put it on but they look relaxed and they look natural and they look kind of glossy and they look comfortable in these oddly uncomfortable outfits. There's something now when you when you see people who, uh, a porn actress who I follow online because I find her very interesting because she's very into spirituality and praying and Buddhism and veganism and yet she does ex extraordinarily explicit films and I kind of like that duality. She's known for having her pubic hair and recently she removed it and she didn't say why but I've always wondered if it's a kind of sort of, well you can't have this now love. <laughs> you can't like, it, it used to be a niche but nobody wants to anymore you know everybody seems to want everyone to look exactly the same and what's nice about this catalogue is you turn the pages and they all look different yeah i think that was nice as a child wondering what i don't know if boys get this as much and i've got a 13 year old at the moment who is absolutely fascinated with her developing body because i guess boys do change and you change your voice but we change so much that you have a period when you're 12 or 13 where you're so obsessed with what what am I gonna look, what am I gonna end up getting? Like, <laughs> it's a little adventure, like you, especially when your boobs start growing, you don't know when they're gonna stop. It's like that phone-in game where you have to shout now before the phone goes. Like you don't know. So it was really nice leafing through this catalogue of beautiful women. And I used to, you know, there are, one thing's interesting looking through it is there are circles. I've, I've drawn circles around some of the outfits. Again, I would like this. But part of it was also wanting to look like the women in it. Well, I never thought we'd get from some on both sides. <laughs> <laughs> Meryl, it's been brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry if I lowered the tone. <laughs> <laughs>